This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to this episode of the Ghost Stories podcast. Always happy to welcome back Nico Katzka from Satrix. And uh, Nico, we're going to do something quite fun today because I have a few questions for you. And then I foolishly said to you, hey, why don't you ask me a few questions? And I can see uh, the excitement on your face. So I'm quite scared for what you might have planned for me. I suppose it's not often that you get to do it the other way around. I feel like I've unleashed a monster. Uh, I suppose we'll find out later. I feel like the glove is on the other hand, eh? So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know what I've unleashed here. I suppose <laughs> we're going to find out. But at least before we get to the fact or, or the point where you pepper me with questions, I have I certainly have a few for you. And I think part of what we're talking about today is that good old favorite diversification. Before you audibly groan as the audience, it's not going to be boring, I promise. This is important stuff. And uh, everyone has different views. You know, there's there's sort of the, the textbook view. There's also a lot of different practical views on these things. I mean, Nico, you'll have your own views on it. So I think let's start there because the, the old joke is diversification or diversification. You know, are you making your portfolio worse by having too many stocks or is it always a good idea? Um, when we were chatting and when we thought about what we do on this podcast, you gave me that quip that, you know, nobody brags at the Bri about a well-diversified strategy. Look, I don't think anyone brags at the Bri anymore about their single stock exposure either, because that's probably down 30% and maybe that's the point. So let me open the floor to you. What are your views on diversification? That's the thing. Eh? When, when no, no one's making good calls, we talk about the rugby at the Bri at, at the moment, it seems, eh? because they, they, we, also, we all got the call right, isn't it? 100%. Long um, Rassi is yep. uh, the standard trade. Long Rassi, Long Jock. Unfortunately, we're losing Jock, but but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to be back again. Thanks, Ghost, for for having me back on, to, on your uh, program. Yeah, so to your point, diversification, it's an interesting topic. Eh? It's a, it's a well-trodden topic, it feels, but um, it's one that's not always well-appreciated for its role in wealth creation. Um, yeah, first, and, and, and to your point, holding... Holding more stocks doesn't necessarily mean being better diversified. You know, in some sense, it's actually made us collectively worse off. You know, think of it, if you held one or two companies in your portfolio, I guarantee you, you'd buy the t-shirt. You'd go to the AGMs and, you know, you'd know exactly what is going on. They'd, of course, as a result, be more eyes looking at uh, every business and asking the hard questions that doesn't always get asked by proxy voters. So in one sense, I think society's emphasis on diversification actually means we've all become uh, more exposed to single stock movements uh, or, or, or less exposed to single stock movements, sorry, which which probably means a Steinoff implosion was some, somewhat painful to many, but didn't really wipe out a lot of investors. Uh, but then again, for the same token, a fragmented environment for oversight where everyone is so fixated on, on being well diversified just makes a Steinoff more likely to happen. Because you know, because of this fragmentation of, of of eyes on the ball, if you like, so that that's one point, and I, I I tend to agree with you there that that there's an element of diversification becoming diversification because we're also well diversified, and it leads to more systemic risk, if you like. Now we always stress that end diversification is not the same as risk diversification. I've actually said this on your program before. Um, putting your eggs on different baskets, but having them on the same truck doesn't really help if that truck overturns. So getting professional help to actually ensure that you are not taking concentrated risk uh, is quite important because you might think that, 
holding three or four equity ETFs, for example, um, because each of them are well diversified means you have a diversified portfolio. Well, actually, it might turn out that these ETFs are actually quite, quite correlated. There's also another aspect of diversification that's very often overlooked, and that is that it is, it is never observed. And so it can seem deeply unsexy with very few highlights, you know, almost like how the English play rugby. And what I mean by this is that it never gives you talking points at a bribe to discuss how glad you are to be following a well-diversified approach to investing. You know, it doesn't give you those talking points, those, those highlights or tidbits. Um, now, contrast this, and this is to, to what we said before the program, um, to that person at the Bri who shares their story of, you know, buying Cecil at 25 Rand a share, or that colleague we all have that bought crypto in the dip, or think about that uncle that told you to buy Harmony or, or Goldfields last year this time, and now is bragging about the fact that both of them are up 80% over the last 12 months since you last saw him. You know, those are the type of stories that create a sense that investing is a one-way bet. Um, and that having concentrated risks often lead to more uh, concentrated rewards. The so, so all of this is you know, good, and, and I'm pretty sure all of us uh, um, have recollections of people having these discussions. But unfortunately, people do not have a similar desire to share the cautionary tales of when they got it wrong, right? So when their investments didn't pay off. And so a diversified approach with few highlights just doesn't give you those juicy stories of shooting the lights out. And people are scared to, to share their painful stories of investing. So you get a warped sense of reality when it comes to taking concentrated risks. And so what this means is that people can easily become impatient with a long-term, well-diversified approach, you know, that slowly ticks along. And then they opt to, to learn the, the, the wrong lessons, uh, investment lessons, and take very concentrated bets that might pay off, right? And it might, you might shoot the lights out, but which also might cause a lot of damage uh, to your long-term financial journey. And so that, that's, that's always how I would caveat it, is, is there's so much to, to being diversified. And you almost have to take a conscious decision to say, you know, I'll, I'll take the, 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 the slower, uh, more sensible route. And we've actually written a piece, and you'll, you'll um, see it uh, through your letter uh, as well soon, where, you know, we, we unpack this a bit and actually talk about the pitfalls of not being diversified. Um, so, you know, we, we believe having a diversified approach to investing, actually, there's, there's gold at the end of the road. Yeah, it's almost like social media. It's such a highlights reel of people's lives. You know, it's kind of like that with portfolios. And you do, of course, get people who talk about where they got it wrong. It's something I've always tried to make a point of is to not be a highlights reel. You know, goodness knows I've gotten lots wrong. Everyone has. Anyone who's telling you they've never lost money on a stock is absolutely lying to you. And uh, I guess in, the way I do it, and I'm interested to hear your views, is, you know, ETFs for me are an absolute no-brainer. And I know this is a Satchik-sponsored podcast. So it sounds like I'm being paid to say that, but that's how my own portfolio works. You know, that's a very authentic view. And not just in a tax-free savings account, but just in general. You know, as you're building equity exposure over time, be it a monthly debit order or however you do it, you know, it makes a hell of a lot of sense to just go and buy beta. Just go buy the market, you know, that let it run. Do you subscribe to an approach? I think I've asked you before, and I, I know single stocks don't necessarily something you dabble much in, but in general... Um, the way I do it is I just sort of take an, a portion of my portfolio and say, okay, that's my more active piece, you know, with this kind of passive underpin to get the overall market move. Is that an approach that you would subscribe to overall? Look, that's the key. And I'm so glad you asked it because people might misconstrue what I'm saying now in that you should never take any risk uh, when you're diversified and, and far from it. Um, in the immortal words, I think of Biggie Smalls, you know, you have to risk it to earn the biscuit. And so taking well-rewarded risk is crucial to growing wealth. 
you just have to make sure you're not concentrating your risk in a way that might lead to your downfall. That, that I think, is, is the key. Thereby, thereby quoting 50 Cent, get rich or die trying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, look, I've, I've always been the strongest advocate for using indexation strategies like well-diversified and low-cost ETFs, as you mentioned, uh, and have that be part of your portfolio. But then also allocating some part of that to good active managers. And what I mean by good active managers is those managers that are taking some risk uh, with a real promise of reward. And, you know, those that, that where you're not overpaying. Definitely also consider buying and selling your own stocks. I think there's great excitement in doing so. Uh, and you can learn a lot about investing, uh, about specific companies. And also, I think most crucially, you can learn a lot about yourself as well. Uh, you know, how, how you deal with upsets and how you deal with getting, getting the calls right, et cetera. Just always be mindful of not becoming too confident and deciding to completely manage your own portfolio you know, after you've made a great call or two. I think just, just having that epistemic humility that the market is far bigger than you are. Um, and if, if, if you know something that you really think the market doesn't, you, you probably don't, right? So, so, so dabble absolutely and, and, and play your hand and, and have active managers um, and all of that. I, I, think, I think those are, those are great, great things to, to do. So yeah, don't don't be too confident, and th and then also remember that hindsight is a fiendish mistress, as I mentioned, um, and can make diversification look very pale in comparison, right? Because you're never gonna in a well diversified portfolio, you, you're not gonna be 40, 50 percent up in a quarter, and those are the things that you have to be, you know, take great care in in, in being cautious of of falling into that trap. There's also look, there's also great structured products available, as you've discussed on your show yourself, um, that can further add protection and further diversify your returns. So while there's awesome products to consider, I, I'll always come back to a simple low-cost index investing strategy or passive, as many people call it, as being the core driver of long-term returns. You know, the, 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 the staple diet, the rice and potatoes, the unsexy with few highlights, but very, very effective. You know, I always, I always take comfort in the fact that I'm, I'm not alone in having this view. You know, in fact, the best active manager of the last century, Warren Buffett, has a very similar view. And he's actually said that, after his death, he wants his entire estate to be uh, tracking indices. So they, they certainly merit in it more than just, you know, the low cost benefit. Like the finance ghost is one thing, but no one wants to be haunted by the ghost of Warren Buffett because they took his money and did bad active management with it. So I think uh, index, index tracker is perhaps the best answer there. Um, <laughs> you know, speaking about Warren Buffett, you can, you can always spot a new financial influencer account online because day one is Warren Buffett quote, day two is Warren Buffett quote. And then if you really are lucky, there might be some, you know, diversification with a Charlie Munger quote. So Buffett gets quoted all the time. And actually you mentioned a quote of his to me that gets misused. It doesn't get misquoted per se because he did say it. He just said it as part of something else. I'd love you to actually just walk us through that. And then unfortunately, I think I have to hand the microphone over to you and prepare myself for whatever may be coming. Yeah, so, so firstly, it is amazing how quotes can be extremely powerful and lending credence to whatever you say. And it's, it's oftentimes used as unsolicited endorsement, right? So I might have a view, I'll throw in the name of Warren Buffett, and all of a sudden my view uh, gets, gets added or amplified because of this, this, the great stature of the man that I'm quoting. But so um, there's a quote that's often attributed to Warren Buffett, but completely out of context, as you mentioned. And it is that he, he said in 2004 at his AGM to investors, he said, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Now, at, at face value, it seems to imply that Warren Buffett, the great oracle of Omaha, endorses an actively contrarian approach to investing. But then again, here's the person that I just mentioned that said, after my death, I want you know, my entire estate to be, to be put in low-cost index tracking vehicles. 
So it, there seems to be a contradiction because if you think of it, index tracking vehicles are not contrarian. In fact, on the contrary, they follow the herd. You know, they swim with the tide. Uh, and so, 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 so what, what, what's going on here? And I, th I think if, if you look at the full quote, there's actually a different lesson that Warren Buffett is trying to um, trying to, 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 to get across. So, so maybe listen to the full quote. If you can humor me for one minute, let me, let me read the full quote, right? So um, in 2004, Warren Buffett said to investors, you know, over the, the past 35 years, American businesses has delivered terrific results and it's been easy for investors to earn juicy returns. Um, all you had to do was uh, invest in an index fund that they never touched and that would have done the job. Instead, many investors have had experiences ranging from mediocre to disastrous. In other words, investors have generally underperformed. And there have been three primary causes for this. First, high costs, only or usually because investors traded excessively or spent far too much cost on investment management. Second, portfolio decisions based on tips and fads rather than on thoughtful quantitative evaluation of businesses. And third, a start and stop approach to market uh, entries and exits. Now, those are the three lessons that he mentioned. Costs tips and fads, you know, just acting erratically. And then third, um, your entry and exit points are ill-timed. And then he goes on to say, and this is where the quote is hidden, right? Investors should remember that excitement and expenses are their enemies. And if they insist on trying to time their participation in equities, then they should be try to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So he is absolutely not advocating for taking an active uh, approach or, 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 or trying to be um, contrarian. In fact, on the contrary, he is suggesting that if you follow the low-cost diversified approach, you would have earned the biscuit, so to speak. But, but investors are actually their worst enemies in, in many respects. And then he says, if you absolutely have to, or you can interpret it as saying, for that part of your portfolio that you are looking to actively manage, do so in a contrarian way to deviate from the core of your investment approach. And that is to follow the herd or swim with the tide. Because if you think of it, fish swim with the tide, right? There's less effort involved and uh, antelope run with the herd. I mean, it just makes sense, right? So, so following the herd in that sense uh, over the long term is actually, there's actually some, uh, some benefit to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what a lot of people forget is the time required to do single stocks properly. You know, a bull market makes everyone look like a genius. If everything is going up, you can pick your 10 stocks and look like a stock picking genius but you know everything went up right so people do people do tend to underestimate just how much effort actually goes into trading you know to call it that so if you speak to really really accomplished traders you know in a good year they can do a 30 or 40% return you know because they're watching closely they are taking positions where there are clear market dislocations sometimes those dislocations are obvious sometimes they aren't you know they often aren't they often get things wrong but you've got to look at it and say well how much time am i spending on this you have to have a pretty big capital base to make it worth your time, you know, and, th and that is why a lot of people, I think, in the past year have kind of rethought some of their active strategies. I actively encourage people to be a little bit active because it helps you learn. Go and read about these companies. Go and, you know, take a smallish position on a stock you like and understand why it worked or why it didn't. This is such a valuable lesson. Obviously, I'm talking about my own book here because that's what I'm passionate about and why I have a business, but... I think it's great, you know, and you can take the lessons you learn from that company, apply it in your own life, your own businesses. You know, that for me is the joy of the markets and just learn and learn and learn, but just position sizes that actually don't hurt you. Like that's always been a big thing for me. Absolutely. And look, I, this this is the part, if, if I may uh, take the proverbial mic and turn it back to you and ask you some questions, Ghost, because... Yes, here we, here we go. I was hoping to avoid that, but we have now reached that point. All right, Nico, today is your day as podcast host. 
you go for it it's inevitable it's inevitable that i'm going to take the mic and um look i i I, I tend to agree with you there. There's, there's great joy and excitement in managing part of your own portfolio. And, 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 and because you learn so much about companies, you learn so much about life and investments and all those things that when you put money actually where your mouth is, type, it's proverbially, or so to speak, then, then you actually get a firmer sense of what it is that, that you're looking for. You know? And, and you, take, you take the time uh, to, to actually uncover the, the gems that is out there. Um, so the first question that I want to ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by how, how, you, how you write your pieces and do your research. You, know, you, you, you have some of the best content, I think, out there in our local market. I think most of your listeners would agree. So there's a few questions that I want to ask to j- just pick your brain and understand how you go about doing this. So the first question that I want to ask you is, are you aware of any cognitive biases you have? And are you working on limiting those? Are you working on bettering yourself? Uh, if, if you have any cognitive biases. And by cognitive biases, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, uh, anchoring. You know, Are you able to forget the price you paid for a stock you hold when evaluating its investment potential? Or do you go back automatically and think, oh, I paid 50 Rand for this stock and it's now at trading at 30 Rand? Or do you look at that stock objectively? Are you able to do that and say, at 30 Rand, is this a good investment or not? Irrespective of what I paid for it, because the market doesn't care what you paid for the stock, right? Um, and also, do you become less risk averse, for example, when you've made money on an investment? Um, almost like when you're up at the casino, right? You're more likely to, to gamble with the, the money you've made. How do you avoid those cognitive biases? Oh, those are very kind words in the beginning. Thank you. So in terms of cognitive biases, everyone has them. Like anyone who claims otherwise is lying. So we all do. And I suppose the degree varies. I think my worst one would probably be that I just hate crystallizing a loss. I think it's a very common cognitive bias. So I'm just not good enough at getting out of the way of something that has taken a really big knock. You know, you kind of get to this point of going like, okay, well, you know, you either have to trade your way out of it. So now you have to be prepared to either go away or buy that dip, bring down your average price. You know, it's the old joke. If you loved it at 50 bucks, you'll, you know, if you liked it at 50 bucks, you'll love it at 20. Now, unfortunately, 20 can still go to 10. And then you've lost another 50% of whatever else you put in there. So I'm not always good at, I think, getting out of the way of things that I should probably get out of the way of. The way I mitigate this is by taking relatively small position sizes per stock. So, you know, I've never been one of those people who thinks you should be highly concentrated. You know, don't create a hill to die on that is 20% of your portfolio. So my position sizes on a single stock, sure, I think it'll never be more than about 3% of the entire portfolio. So if that thing halves, in absolute terms, it's really, really irritating because you think of all the things you, you know, you could have spent that money on as opposed to just watched half of it disappear to the market. But in the greater scheme of things, it's not the end of the world. Right, okay, that's that's awesome. Uh, the next question is when revisiting a company that you've viewed unfavorably in the past, do you find it difficult to almost in a way, reprogram yourself to consider it objectively if there's been price movements that make it more attractive. Uh, For example, can you fundamentally dislike a company and its management team, but like the price enough to buy it? You know, it's almost like buying an ugly painting, but at a good price. Do you find this hard to do? Or or can you you get get over your dislike for a company at, at a good price? Look, I think when you when you view the world very much through a valuation lens, it becomes a little bit easier to remember that anything can be interesting at the right price and anything can be bad at the wrong price. And I think people struggle with both those things. They especially struggle with the latter. You know, they struggle to believe that Apple over the next 10 years might not beat 
the index. But if you go and have a look at the constituents of Apple's returns over the past 10 years, their compound annual growth rate in earnings is not what's really driven the share price. It's been a massive uptick in the valuation multiple and tons of share buybacks along the way. But the valuation multiple is not going to double, triple, or quadruple again. You know, it's not done that. So the next 10 years for Apple is going to have to be driven by earnings and buybacks. And that's not as sexy a growth algorithm as including multiple expansion in there. But it's Apple, right? How dare you say anything about Apple that implies that it might not be the best way to create wealth over the next 10 years. And perhaps I'm wrong. And perhaps it will be a massive outperformer for the next 10 years. You know, the business is incredibly strong, but you've got to look at the price. And then obviously vice versa. You know, people do struggle to say, look at this hideous thing. How can you possibly buy this nonsense? And then you have a look a year later and the thing is like up 100%, you know. The reality on the market is if you're looking for stuff that can go up in a big way, then you're going to have to look for things that are being ignored. It's unlikely that something like Apple is so mispriced. And it does happen. I mean, Tesla's up 100% this year. I still think it's mispriced, but it's, up, it's basically doubled this year. So the US market in particular can be an utterly crazy place. I think the local market, blue chips are very closely followed. Yes, we do sometimes get big surprises, but it's unlikely. You have to get into the weeds of it. You have to get into the funny looking stuff to really go and find interesting opportunities. And that's what value investors just absolutely love doing, right? Is they go and look for something that is so mispriced and so utterly hated and forgotten that the margin of safety becomes enormous. And there you are probably going to fundamentally dislike the company. It's, it's very likely that you're going to look at this and go, geez, this is awful. You know, I wouldn't buy this for my worst enemy, but look at the price. And then it becomes interesting. I also think the holding period matters. You know, over the short term, price matters far more than industry dynamics, the fundamentals of the business, the prowess of the management team. If something is just shockingly mispriced, then you can make money on it. But then you have to watch it like a hawk and you have to understand what you are doing. And you have to have properly asked yourself, why is the market wrong? Like, why does no one else see what I see? And that's where something like Twitter is incredibly valuable. Unfortunately, it has come off a lot this year in terms of people talking about stocks. But it is a very, very useful place to test an idea, test a thesis. This is why people tend to gravitate towards friends who are also involved in the markets, you know, WhatsApp groups, ask the question, forums. You know, I think it's very healthy for a market to have these kind of conversations and to learn from them and all that kind of thing. Over the longer term, and that's why you listen to, and that's why you listen to the finance coast, right? Is to earn that street cred to make you more popular at the bright, you know. So, hey, I, I mean, I won't comment on that. I'll, I'll just take the compliment graciously. But I think you know, long term uh, stuff like management matters a lot. You know, industry fundamentals matter a lot. When you draw a ten-year chart, just because you bought something that was five percent mispriced, that's not going to save you if you buy the wrong company. And there are great companies, household names that can firmly go in the wrong direction because where they are in the value chain is unattractive. So, so much of it comes down to your holding period. And I think one of the best things about the market is it really has something for everyone. You know, if you make a big effort to learn, you can look at it and say, okay, this month I'm going to buy ETFs because I want long-term beta. I just want market exposure. I still like Apple specifically. So I'm going to go buy some of that in my US portfolio. But I've been seeing people write about this local JSE mid-cap with really good prospects. It looks to me underpriced. I'm going to go have a punt at that as well. Those are three completely different things, completely different things. But all of them are, at the end of the day, equities. And I think that's what's so cool about the market. It's like music. You know, It doesn't matter what kind of music you love. There's something out there for you. And most people enjoy more than one genre, depending what mood they're in. The market is a lot like that.
I like what you're saying, and and, and investing is not like it's, it's not like sports, right? You must you must be able to say I like this company, but at the current price, it's just not worth my time. You don't you don't you don't support the company at all costs. I think is an important lesson that I that I take from you. Um, now I know it's not February, right? So, uh, but if we were to use love analogies a bit, what's the one investment you'll always remember that got away? And for the same token, what is that one investment that's broken your heart a few times too many and Yet every now and then you find yourself drunk dialing it in a moment of weakness, knowing it's a bad idea and then hurting yourself again. Do you, do you have two, some, some personal stories to investing? I think everyone does. I mean, off the top of my head, I think one that got away from me and it really shouldn't have. It was just, I just for some reason didn't execute in time and then this thing just kept going up and then it's like, oh, okay, it'll come back. I'll get another chance and then it doubles again and it's too late. Um, and that was PBT Group. Perfect example. Local, JSC listed, Little technology, small cap, really interesting. Um, will always be very dear to my heart because I actually wrote something, you know, when I started this this business, I had Ghostmail as an online platform and it was still very small. And I wrote something on PBT Group and I tweeted it. And Mark Hassenfuss from the Financial Mail picked it up, he read it, he liked it. Um, I think he was on PBT Group, so maybe he was slightly biased. But then he contacted me and said, hey, you know, I really like what you do. Would you like to write for Investors Monthly? So PBT Group will always have a special place in my heart for that reason. I think that was largely what took the finance goes as a brand to the next level. But annoyingly, I mean, that's when it was trading. I can't remember exactly, but it, it was like a buck a share. You know, it's now at like 750. You know, so uh, that was just a really silly It's the one that got away, but at least you snuck a kiss. Yes. Right? And, and, and so what, what's the one that you drunk dial that you've hurt yourself too, too many times on? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's got to go to transaction capital, surely. You know, we had an excellent relationship, all looked good. And then I got blindsided by transaction capital's wayward uh, behavior. And then I even gave the stock a chance at about 10 bucks a share because the management team bought at the same level. And I thought, okay, like this is clearly a problem, but at least uh, let me bring my average price down. Well, I think it's halved since then. But this is where that bias comes in for me now. So I haven't sold because for me now, it's kind of like the money's there. It's sitting there. Can transaction capital go completely, completely wrong? I mean, some would argue it has already, but sometimes if you just leave it alone, you know, unless what you own is so, so fundamentally broken, you can also really hurt yourself by panicking and crystallizing a loss. I had the same thing with Meta. You know, at one point I was deep in the red on Meta because Zuckerberg was going absolutely bananas with the Metaverse and the market hated it. But then you kind of look at it and you go, look, you know, if I sell now, you have to believe that at some point, Zuck's pocket is going to start burning and he's going to maybe listen to the market and start doing the right stuff. And that's what happened. You know, then you've got to make a decision. Do you buy more? Do you just hang on? You've got to avoid catching that falling knife as the saying goes over and over and over again. So eventually I get to a point where I go, you know what, it's enough now. I've got enough money sitting in transaction capital. Maybe it goes back. It'll never go back to where it was, but maybe I'll at least get out of the pain. And in the meantime, it's a good reminder to me to never take my eye off the ball ever I don't think it was easy to spot what happened there. Otherwise, like a lot of people got hurt by that thing. A lot of smart people got hurt by that thing. But I should probably have trimmed my position when it really ramped up. That's another problem, by the way, for private investors. You know, in a CIS, you can trim your positions in a normal fund and not incur the tax all the time. When you're an individual investor, if you are selling within three years, you pay full income tax. So depending on what you earn, that's up to like, what is it, 45%, you know, versus CGT. So it encourages you to keep holding. They're actually encouraging the wrong behavior with single stocks. That's the right behavior with an index fund. It's not necessarily the right behavior with single stocks. So that was a big part of it for me. I was kind of waiting for the three years to click over. 
so that I could then sell and only pay CGT. And yeah, lesson learned. Lesson learned is don't look at it from a tax perspective, look at the company. Look, I think you're in the fortunate position where your capital gains that, that a sell would trigger is so high that, that you will be taxed. The rest of us mere mortals don't necessarily have that, that same problem. Listen, I, I dream of having a capital gain on transaction capital. Trust me, at this point in time, if I triggered that loss, I don't think I'd pay tax for a long time. No, I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a lesson learned. So if, 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 if we, if we are on the on the naming companies and, and, and staking our positions, one that is quite topical at the moment that I find fascinating to follow what's going on. And if I had to, if it, it's a bit unfair, but if I had to ask you, where would you place your money for the next three years? Pick and pay or ShopRite? Uh, it's a very easy one to answer. That would definitely be ShopRite. And this is actually a great example of where being contrarian can hurt you. So the contrarian, well, my opinion, obviously, maybe I'm wrong. And always keen to hear other views, but the contrarian here will look at those two share price charts and go, okay, let me go long pick and pay. Um, let me either avoid ShopRite or short it if you really are playing a proper relative strategy. Uh, that's the contrarian view. And maybe the chart would say, oh, you know, why have these things diverted like this? But this is where you now need to go and actually do the work. And I always say to people in a retailer, you have, you have an incredible superpower as an investor because part of your due diligence is to just go to the shop. Like you don't need to go and read page 543 of the integrated annual report to figure out what's going on. Just go to the shop. Speak to your friends. Where are they shopping? It's a two-minute conversation at the bra. Hey, you know, where are you doing your groceries? Oh, check a 60-60. Oh, no, me too. And also every single other person I know. You know, just look around you on the road. What are those scooters branded? Like nine out of 10 of them is checkers, right? So, you know, it's not rocket science to then think to yourself, well, if checkers is making more money, who is yeah. making less? <laughs> There's not many answers there, right? And pick and pay is the obvious one. Like, it doesn't, you don't need to be a genius to figure out what happened there. So, so you're not convinced that new management at, at Pick and Pay will turn the ship around in a three-year time, time frame? With the greatest of respect to Sean Summers, he was there in a bull market. He was there in a South African bull market. The rand was at like six bucks to the dollar. You know, the budget was in great shape. FIFA was coming. You know, you only knew who Jacob Zuma was if you really read the news and you were like read down that organogram. It was a long time ago. It was a different time in this country, very different time. And to be honest, again, he was a lot younger, you know, with no disrespect meant to older executives. A turnaround specialist, in my opinion, should be someone in their 40s where you say to them, hey, you know what, if you get this right over the next 10 years, this is your big chance. So here's a base salary, sure, but the bulk of the remuneration should be in equities. It should be upside. Person with tons of energy, this is their big chance to really make it work. Because make no mistake, what pick and pay needs is a full-blown turnaround, not a slight tweak. ShopRite is killing them and will continue to kill them because in the game of grocery retail, the margins are tiny. So ShopRite can be, you know, 20 basis points better off or cheaper, you know, and pick and pay now is to take that out of its gross margin. It's a really big deal for the company. Pick and pay was loss making in this period. And that was before you take into account the cost of diesel. So, you know, the chart tells you one thing, but you also need to just go and have some common sense, look around. The last two or three times I've been to a pick and pay, that place has been very quiet. And, uh, you know, that tells you a lot. So, well, uh, hopefully I can be on your show again in three years' time from today. Um, put it in the diary and let's let's see if you, you were correct or not. Nico, um, sorry, just, just on that, and one thing I just want to add, I also wouldn't buy a shop, right? So I know you're making me choose one of who's going to do better, but I, but I wouldn't be on shop, right, either. And this is the classic example of I love the business. It is very hard to fault what they are doing. I mean, where do you even begin to point fingers? But look at the valuation and look at the environment in which they are operating. Can ShopRite meaningfully, like materially outperform 
the broad market index to justify single stock risk from this valuation? I don't think so. That's a look. That's a great lesson. I want to come back to it again. It's not like you're supporting a sports team. If you if you it's a great company, but it, you need to pay a good price for a great company. Otherwise, it's a bad investment. So okay, ghost. If I was to draw a grid, and I, this is a bit more of a philosophical question, but I'd like to get some some peek into your brain in terms of how you view investments from a more philosophical perspective. If I was to draw a grid of value versus growth and long term versus short term. Right, so it's a it's a four grid matrix, if you like: value, growth, long term, short term. Where would you put yourself philosophically, fundamentally? Where on that grid do you reside? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And value versus growth is almost like the active versus passive debate, right? It really does sort of divide the room. Look, for me, I'm a little bit more of a chameleon in terms of I don't really care, truthfully, like what kind of style I use. For me, it's more about the right thing at the right price. That sounds a bit like value investing, but I think you know value investors are are very focused on the price. And I suppose I'm probably getting this wrong from a textbook you know explanation, but this has certainly been my experience in dealing with value investors and growth investors and figuring out where I am on that spectrum. So because I'm so interested in company strategy and market dynamics and how things are changing over time, that's why I find growth stocks more interesting. Like if you ask me whether I'd rather learn about you know, what is happening in Apple's world or what is happening in the world of a factory in Brackpan that is valued at, you know, 0.2 times net asset value. I can tell you for damn sure which one I would rather learn about. It doesn't mean one is a better investment than the other. I just understand my own interests and I try to go where my interests are. So I would say definitely a value bias because I'm certainly not this buy anything at any price kind of investor, far from it. You know, I just can't get my head around it. There are many things I haven't bought particularly on that principle. Some of them I've missed big upswings because that's how markets work. I've also thankfully, you know, also avoided some really huge drawdowns by taking that approach. So for me, it's all about what are you paying today versus those future expectations and, and short-term trades versus long-term. Look, short-term can be a lot of fun, especially swing trading. You know, that's when technical analysis starts to come into it. And that's another entire area of finance. And a lot of fundamentalists, you know, they almost break out in hives if you start to talk charts. But my view, honestly, is it's silly to ignore charts because a market is actually just a whole lot of humans making a decision to buy or sell. If enough humans believe that 200 Rand is a support level and they put a bid in at 200 Rand, you know what's going to happen at 200 Rand? It's going to bounce higher. Like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, obviously, it doesn't always work. But it just doesn't make sense to me to ignore it. You know, if you really want to own a company and it's very obvious that it's been in a traded range recently, you know, 10% up and down, like why buy it at the top of that range? Just wait, just be patient. It will probably come down and you can get it 10% lower. You still bought the same company, the same story, but you've improved your entry point or you've improved your exit point. So I'm very much a long-term kind of person. I'm hoping next year, my personal life's in a bit better shape now. I can do more in the way of short-term stuff because... You've got to really be on it. You've got to watch it carefully. And if you are distracted, you should be staying away from that completely. Yeah, I, I think I think the biggest lessons I've learned from from investing is that what I mentioned earlier is is, is trying to consciously avoid anchoring. You know, to 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 look at a, you, you know, you mentioned a few companies that that you're holding on to transaction capital. You're holding on to. You don't want to lock in those losses. But in truth, every day you should look at your investments and go. Would I buy transaction capital at the current price? And if not, then why am I holding that? Right? It's it's actually incredibly hard to to distance yourself from those almost inevitable cognitive biases. And the other one as well is just it's it's enormously exciting, right? To 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 act 
uh, in the short term, but there's there's actually virtue in in fighting that action bias, in, in actually sticking it out and actually investing in something for the long term, following, for example, as I mentioned, an unsexy diversified approach and holding on to that um, and pairing that with other investments that that have a different type of payoff. So it's actually it's actually incredibly hard. It, investing is a is a battle of the mind almost, right? To to get yourself to do the right thing, even if in the short term it might feel your gut might suggest something else. Is pair your fundamental knowledge with some technical analysis, with some understanding of how people work in the market. And that's why uh, I always come back to saying investing is far more like a poker game. You know, there's there's so many facets, and there's a human element as well. It's not like chess, where objectively you can say you know, I am better than you are, or this position favors the one team. Uh, it's much more like poker. There's nuance, there's uncertainty. And so if you approach it with that almost epistemic humility, if you like, for acknowledging the fact that I don't know everything and I might get it wrong, it it, it gives you peace of mind as well, because I, I tend to be very hard on myself if I've made an investment mistake. And so that 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 can lead to being overcautious, right? And, and having experienced losses, then you almost overcompensate and say, now I don't want to take any risk. And then, you know, Biggie Smalls will suggest that's that's not a great strategy, right? Um, but but before we get too can far- I, can, I, can I add, yeah. I just want to add one thing to that. So, you know, the action bias, and I think this is where interest rates play such a big role to, to investor behavior, because when interest rates are extremely low, you're not paid to wait. So you want to do stuff. You know, you're earning a very low yield in your savings account, it's not exciting. So you go, oh, you know, maybe I should try that stock. And then inevitably what happens is, when rates are low, equities are doing well. So now it like doubles up on the action bias. You know, there's a real FOMO. And the correct thing to do is to be in equities in that environment. Absolutely. Like let's not, let's not fight the trend there. You know, I think the hard thing is to recognize when that trend is starting to roll over. And then it's time to say, thank you, equities. I've had a great time with you. Goodbye. You know, get out of it. Go and get paid to wait in yield and then buy equities you know, at the bottom. I'm making that sound very simple and that is the hardest thing in the entire world. And if it was easy, there wouldn't be an investment industry. But that's the perfect trade. That is literally the perfect trade is get paid to wait at the right times and then fly into equities at the right times. And even if you can just get that slightly right, just that macroeconomic cycle, you know, stock picking is fun, but the macroeconomic cycle is more important. If you're on the wrong end of the cycle, I don't care how good your stock picking is, you are still gonna get hurt. Likewise, if you catch the cycle correctly, you can just about buy anything and you'll probably do okay. Absolutely. So in other words, consider your, your counterfactual, what you can earn elsewhere uh, and not just look at an investment in and of itself in isolation, but consider what you can hold as an alternative and what that gives you. Currently, absolutely, yields are giving you an exceptional return, real return, uh, not just in South Africa, globally. And so that's becoming an attractive asset class where a year and a half, two years ago, it was not. It was not even, it shouldn't have been considered. Um, so be nimble. And that's why you have to be careful with like payday investing. You know, if you've got a debit order into an index fund, that's fine. You're just dollar cost averaging. You, you know, it's part of your personal finance plan. It's a good thing for your discipline. That's great. But if you've got a little bit of money where you're doing active investing every month, it doesn't need to be on the 25th. You know, don't do that. Like take the money, put it in your savings account, earn the yield and watch for the right time. The right time might be the 10th of next month. It might be three months from now. Just earn the yield in the meantime and get ready. Like that's what you should be doing. Don't be forced to, oh, it's the 25th, I must pick a stock today. Like that is not the right approach. Look, I'm going to ask you the, the probably the worst, most unfair question I can ask you. So just brace yourself. Um, if you had to absolutely had to pick only three stocks, and this can be anywhere in the world, and you had to hold it forever, no, no tilting, no selling, nothing. This is a stock that you hold. 
for the next 50 years, which companies would that be? Well, it doesn't have to be companies. It can be instruments. It can be uh, ETFs. It can be anything. Anything, three investments that you have to hold for 50 years, go. I should cheekily say shares in the finance ghost is one of them because I'm in control of that. But I'll, I'll leave that out because that is just a horrible answer. Look, one of them would have to be Microsoft. Um, you know, that thing is just insanely powerful. We've covered it a few times in Magic Markets Premium and it's just so strong. You know, they, they play everywhere. People don't realize just how big Microsoft is. You think Microsoft Outlook, you know, Microsoft Word. People forget they have a really strong advertising business inside LinkedIn. You know, it's just an absolutely huge, huge business. They have a cloud business that fights with Amazon. They've got everything you can think of gaming. You know, it's a monster. So I think what I like about Microsoft is if you believe in digital, and I mean, you'd have to be very odd not to believe in digital, then you need to believe in Microsoft. They, they, that's just how it is. So as a buy and hold, that would be there for me. The last thing I'll say on Microsoft is, you know, if you look at the list of the top 10 market cap companies in the world, and you go and you look in the last sort of bull market, pre-global financial crisis, when it was all about big oil, uh, Microsoft was in that list. Microsoft is still in that list. And the last time I looked, it's the only company in both lists. So that is staying power. The second one I would pick is Visa. Could just as easily be MasterCard, to be honest. Just the payment rails that sit behind the, the digitization of cash. So if people are going to pay in a digital way, money needs to move between a, from a bank account to a merchant's bank account, sometimes offshore. You know, Visa, MasterCard, that's what they do. They have those payment rails. It is basically impossible to rebuild those payment rails. Probably the best moat in the world. You know, at one point when everyone believed that normal money was dead and we were all going to run around with USBs paying for things, there was a bit of a worry around what the blockchain means and crypto. I mean, let's get real. You know, if crypto is ever going to become a payment solution, it's going to have to use the same rails that Visa and MasterCard own today. You know, people just latch onto a technology and they make these imaginary worlds that they want to exist. It's not real. So for me, that's the... It's solving, solving problems that, that don't necessarily exist, right? I, I just can't see an... Oh, Tani somewhere in Portugal buying her groceries and paying with, with cryptos anytime soon. And until that, that happens or that becomes realistic, Visa and MasterCard, they're going to be People there. forget how hard it is to build that network where everyone is willing to accept this payment method and your bank is issuing you a card backed by it. And it's just, it's an incredible moat. And then I guess the third one for buy and hold, I would probably choose something like Accenture. Uh, which is probably a very left field answer that you might not have been expecting. I bet you were waiting for me to say Apple. I think uh, I think Accenture, and the reason I say that is, you know, they are very much at the forefront of whatever trends there are in technology and they're helping corporates implement those solutions. And then what they end up doing is they actually become part of the organization. The organization ends up relying on Accenture because no one inside the organization properly understands what's actually going on. So you have a scenario where Accenture goes in, does a big project on you know, take your pick, either cloud or big data or AI, honestly, whatever the buzzword is of the time, you can be sure there's an Accenture consultant waiting to sell it to you. And then you go and do this project so you can go and tell the board that you are right at the forefront of this tech, but you've just locked yourself in to pretty serious reliance on Accenture. And they make fantastic margins. They keep finding ways to increase their margins. You know, people keep, well, people will look at that and go, yeah, but they're just selling time. Yeah, but you can sell time. Time is finite but the rate per hour is not, you know? So I, I'm not, I'm not as, uh, as allergic to selling time as, as some people seem to be. And I, I, would go with, I would go with those three, I suppose. So obviously very much a tech focus, but I think if you're asking for buy and hold forever, it's hard not to go down the tech road. I mean, I'm really not sure what other industry 
would make sense. So Warren Buffett would have probably said Coca-Cola and I don't know, one other company that, but no, I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. So those of you that were waiting for three stocks to hold forever, there you go. There's your three. Now consumers, consumers are fickle. That's the last thing I'll say on that. Stuff like Coca-Cola, any retailer you can think of, consumers are fickle. We like to believe our favorite product will never die or our favorite retailer. Talk about cognitive bias and favoritism. I remember one ghost mail I wrote that investing is not the Lurie's. It's not a brand awards ceremony. Just just because you love Nike shoes doesn't mean it's a great buy. Just because you hate Crocs doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in it. And how many times have you said it yourself? A a company's moat is everything, right? I mean, just, just having that, that ability to protect your market share and grow it almost unencumbered. I mean, that, that's, that's incredible to have that uh, as part of your quiver. Uh, you know, you can, be, you can be a great company now and people might like you now, but do you have the ability to secure that going, going forward? And that, that, that should be part of your, your consideration when investing in a company as well, right? Not just follow the, the latest trends and tips and fads, but, but really look at those companies that can remain relevant. Uh, in a changing world. Uh, and, and so the companies that you mentioned, all, all of them are companies that have seen enormous change in their world and their surroundings and in the market that they trade in and et cetera, et cetera. But they've always been able to remain relevant. And that, that's an incredibly hard thing to do. So I, 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 think, I think, you know, finding companies with, with good moat, uh, that's incredible. Ghost, before I let, let you off the hook, uh, give you back your, your, your much coveted uh, mic, is there any question you wished I asked you? Oh, that's an interesting one. Gee, that's just cheating now. Hey, look at me uh, helping you out here. Um, sure, that's a great. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I think maybe, maybe just a very high level is like how to actually start the journey of looking at single stocks. You know, I think that's an important one. So, how do you start your journey looking at single stocks, guys? I think the very important thing is to understand that the more you read, the better you will be. So it's a time investment. And I think if you're going to go down that route, you need to figure out whether or not you are genuinely interested. So far too many people will come in and they've heard, you know, I can make money in the markets and they think, okay, great, you know. And for like a week, they read everything and they're keen and they really want to understand. And then that interest starts to wane. I think if you, you, you know, if you're going to play in single stocks, you need to be a little bit obsessed with learning about the world around you. I think more than anything else, because businesses are nothing more than a function of the world around you. So read and read and read and read. And then don't get bogged down or don't get put off by endless reams of financial information that you don't understand. To be very honest, if I think about how I will go and assess a company or when we cover one in Magic Markets Premium, we're probably putting 20% of our effort into the financial information, like recent financial information, and 0% effort into note 500 in the financial statements. It's just too hard. There's too many other variables that will change the way that company performs. You know, you don't need to be an expert in deferred tax to go and understand whether or not a company's financials make sense. You really don't. You need to be able to understand trends like what's happening to operating margin. I mean, I've spoken to, you know, highly qualified investment people and you point out a particular metric in a company which to me has seemed obvious and, and I'm, you know, and there's many that I've missed. That's not the point of this, but just look at the obvious stuff, you know, and then they haven't thought about that because they're looking at note 20 of the financial statements. They've forgotten to just apply a level of common sense. So for me, it's about reading. It's about common sense. And once you start to understand a little bit about a company's moat, what that industry looks like, supply and demand, then start to understand what some of the big valuation metrics look like. 
and go and look at what it's trading at versus historical averages. So one of the best investments you'll ever make is in a system called Ticker, T-I-K-R. It's like Bloomberg Lite, effectively. It's actually affordable for retail investors. It's not free, can't be free, but it's manageable. And it helps you do things like go and draw a 10-year chart of the price earnings multiple. And you can go and see, hang on, this thing's always traded at 10x, now it's at 15x. You know, does that sound right? Or is it more likely to go back to 10x? And then you start to juxtapose, okay, what are the earnings doing versus where is the multiple versus historical averages? And that's how you start to piece together a story around, okay, what is the more likely than not performance from here of this company? And I promise you it has almost nothing to do with the super detailed notes to the financials. Most of what you need from the financials, yes, you need to understand the big stuff, but there's too many other variables and that's where position sizing comes into it. So if you follow a sensible process and you're not sitting with 20% of your money in one stock, you know, where you might have a shocking Steinhoff type outcome, you can end up doing better. Otherwise, you can end up in serious analysis paralysis and you spend a month understanding a company, you've convinced yourself of the outcome you were hoping for when you went into it because now you've worked so hard, right? Cognitive bias. I've put all the work into this company. I want to own it now. Otherwise, I wasted my time. There's a lot to this and it's probably a whole nother podcast. But I think, uh, yeah, that's just kind of the starting points. Um, and that's a lot of what we do in Magic Markets. You know, that's why I enjoy so much what we do there is kind of run through that process. How do you understand a single stock? It's really fun. Fantastic. Sure. It's been it's been great fun. Thank you for being on my podcast, Ghost, and I hope to have you back. Yes, Nico. You're going to have to start your own one soon, eh? Nico Stories or similar. <laughs> uh, but thank you. I hope, uh, you know, to our listeners, uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you'd like Nico to start his own podcast, now is the time to tell us. <laughs> and uh, Nico, thanks for joining me on my podcast, in case anyone's forgotten. Uh, <laughs> and to the team at Satrix for the ongoing support of Ghostmail and just investor education in general. It is always much appreciated. Awesome. Keep doing the great work, Ghost. Thanks for having me on.